John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? What choice? The last thing I took away from the yeshiva is this. We can't run from who we are. Our destiny chooses us. Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where this week we are continuing our exploration of rounders. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. This is the outlaw, John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in San Diego, California, and a voiceover guy. I am not a card player, but I love this movie, and I'm ready to jump back into part two of rounders. I'm checking it up. Yeah, one more time for you. Anyway. Did, yeah. did you have a moment of going like, hey, maybe I should start playing poker after this movie? No, because I'm no good at this. I'm no good at playing. I know what I'm good at. Card playing is not something I'm good at. Look, solitaire, fuck yeah, all day and all night. But pokers, poker, no. I, I'm not good at playing the man um, and understanding their tells. It's like chess. I'm not really good at chess. Those are those things that I'm very mad I'm not good at, but you just have to accept certain things in life, and that's certain, something I'm ex- I've accepted. Nor do I want to lose money because I suck at something. That's another part of it, too. I never put time into poker. You know, like, you know, I've played in a few games, as as all of us have probably. Sure, sure, sure. And I think it was funny. I was thinking about, you know, in our last episode, I was talking about my dad being the person who was always teaching me and very competitive and loved games. Mm -hmm. That, I think, put me in the negative space about things like this because I didn't want I, I didn't know that you could play games just for fun. Right. That wasn't a thing in my childhood, <laughs> you know, and so games were always like very serious and you had to play them in the right way. And so I, I never wanted to learn how to play poker, you know, just didn't want to do it. I totally understand that, man. <laughs> um, 
when we left off, we had just discovered that Worm hadn't been entirely honest with Mike about just how much money he owes. And in fact, he owns owes $25,000, not just to grandma, but to grandma's partner, Teddy KGB. Right. At the same time this is happening, Mike walks into this fancy bar, spots Martin Landau, his professor, and asks to sit down. And I just want to point out. Yeah. There's some things where the scene totally works, yes. but the setup of the scene is so bizarre when you think about it, which is that what is happening is that Martin Landau is sitting alone in a bar with a warm bottle of gin drinking by himself. Yeah. That is weird. Really? <laughs> how many? How often have you seen anybody with a full bottle of booze sitting oh, alone by themselves? He's got a whole bottle of gin that that's he's just fair. drinking by himself. You know, that's fair, actually. I didn't think about it that way. I thought he would just like, you know, have a couple of a couple of ben, a couple of, of drinks, a couple of shots sure. or whatever, and then take a taxi home. But yeah, maybe it was for, you know, because it's staging and directing. Maybe he thought it would look more regal or more noble for him to be sitting more old school for him to be sitting there with that bottle of gin and uh and uh, drinking by himself and i think he's work isn't he working also does he have papers or no does he not yeah have there's some kind of work going on yeah yeah so he's just kind of maybe he's just getting out of the office and he wants to sit in the bar there's a lot i didn't grow up in new york and i didn't grow up in those places but i i know that there are people who are literally will sit at bars and work and that oh, is yeah. so strange to me because i've i've i rarely sit at coffee shops and work i can't even think of sitting at a at a uh uh bar and working that would just be weird to me Having talked to um, knowing some bartenders and particularly mm. I've known a couple of bartenders who worked like a dive bar. Yeah. And the stories about the people that are the daytime regulars, <laughs> people that show up at the bar at 11 and sit and drink until five, Yeah, you know, while watching, you know, the, the game on TV or something. That is a thing. Yeah. That is weird to me. You know, God bless whatever whatever floats your boat is fine. God bless, but, God bless. But but Martin Landau's sitting there drinking his gin, and comes Mike, and he says, "That was a nifty trick the other night." And then he says, "Of course, it was an altogether different trick that disappearing at you both today at your group's meeting." So he knows that he bailed. Yeah, and I like that Lando can do this, Steve, because when you see him, when Mike walks in, he's like, "Michael," you know, he's got the yeah. surprise and joy and happiness of seeing Michael. But then he also uh, has that kind of dad vibe to him when he says, of course, it was an altogether different trick he pulled. So there's a professional side and there's a personal side. And certainly the professional side is being let down by some of Mike's actions throughout the movie. But the personal side isn't affected because he has a very warm feeling about Michael. And as we're talking about this, it occurred to me last time and it occurs to me now, it's very similar to Goodwill Hunting and the Robin Williams character yeah. with Matt Damon. So this may have been something he was kind of working out himself in in taking on roles like this. The but the interesting thing to me is, and I'm sure you've had this. There are some people that can make you feel worse by being really nice oh. about your fuck up yep. than by coming down hard. Well, I figure I owe you an explanation. Ah, oh, not to me. I'm sure there's a good reason you left. You just have to work harder. And what's and maybe you know what else is too? And this to me particularly is like a Jewish thing. <laughs> it's like no it's i'm sure you had your reasons and you're like oh i feel so terrible oh, oh i feel awful please be mad at me yeah and here's the thing that i was thinking about why did mike come here maybe just maybe because he respects him so much and he wants to kind of touch base with him and make sure he hasn't lost any respect from him you know kind of a fatherly again father-son type thing 
it's what I think it's again, it's like the gin. It's like the bottle of gin at the table. Yeah. The scene is great. Yes, it is. And the things that they did to get us to this scene don't quite make sense, but it's okay because the scene is so good. Yeah. Uh, Cause he says, you know, do you want to see, I can get another glass. What are you drinking? Gin. Always gin. And then pours him a warm glass of gin, like not even an ice cube. And I'm like, look, I like alcohol. Nobody drinks warm gin yeah. <laughs> and likes it. That just sounds terrible. Yeah. I know a magician doesn't divulge his secrets, but uh, <laughs> I'm no magician. But if it wasn't magic, how did you know what everyone held? And then you see, and Matt Damon plays this so well, is that you, we go from talking about the law and stuff like that to him talking about poker and his eyes light up. Yeah. And you could see this is his passion. You see the difference. Yep. I was watching when the cards came out. That's that's just an old habit with me. Like breathing. You watch the cards. I watch the cards also, but I watch the players reacting to the cards. That's how I knew the DA made his two pair and and uh, Judge Kaplan missed the flush. And it's funny. Landau says a very seemingly naive thing. He says, I never knew you had to calculate so much at cards. <laughs> I'm like, come on, you're not dumb. Cards are complicated. And then he makes a speech. You only start with jacks are better split. Nines are better wired. Three high cards to a flush. If it's good enough to call, you got to be in there raising, all right? I mean, tight, but aggressive. And I do mean aggressive. That's your style, Professor. Why is aggressive the Professor's style? <laughs> because it's – maybe it's impressive. maybe it's because it's anti what he normally conveys. Maybe. So it's a way of unsettling the other players if he's an aggressive guy, if they're used to seeing him be nice during the day. And I love that it ends with uh, the Professor saying – you were officially never invited to our game again. <laughs> I don't blame you. you. Put a guy like me in a game like that. My cards don't even matter. I'll play it blind. And again, it's that you can see that excitement on his face. The confidence. Mm-hmm. And the professor studies him and then says, Mike, may I tell you a story? <laughs> this is where having a great actor like Martin Landau is, is, is oh. worth all the money. Because this monologue comes out of nowhere. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, he tells this story and he, and the story is that generations of his family have all been rabbis, Yeah, which again is very similar to crimes of character and crimes and misdemeanors. The elders said I had a 40 year old's understanding of the Midrash by the time I was 12. But by the time I was 13, I knew I could never be a rabbi. Why not? Because for all I understood of the Talmud, I never saw God there. Oh, that is such a great line. I never saw God there. Oof. And one I relate to. I mean, not mm. that I was the pride of my yeshiva or anything like that. <laughs> I was never, never did any of that stuff. But I've always been fascinated by religion, fascinated by Jewish history, fascinated yeah. by the Bible. I just never, I'm an atheist. I just never saw God there. Right. What you is know? the yeshiva? Is that, the tr is that your School. temple? Oh, school. That's school. Okay. Yeshiva is the school where young men were were educated. Gotcha. Okay. A, a religious education. Okay. And uh, the, it's like and, seminary. And, okay. And the what do you say? A forty year old understanding of the of the of the midrash. What's the midrash? So the Talmud and the midrash. These are the tradition. The Talmud is the um, uh, Jewish texts of the history and the analysis of the meaning of the religion. I would guess I'd put it that way. Okay. Because, and I think we talked about before, is that Jewish, there's a scholarly ele element of Judaism. And so you have this history of thousands of years of rabbis arguing about the meaning of all this stuff. Yeah. 
And so that's what you study as you study at yeshiva. And I just had a whole digression I thought of, and I'm not going to say it because <laughs> it would take us forever. Someday we'll talk more about some of the stuff I have many theories about, about Ooh, some of this. The Cinefile short, I like. Sure. Cinefile short on Jewish history at some point. <laughs> yeah, short. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. anyway. Yes. Couldn't lie to yourself. I tried. Does Mike understand at this moment why he's telling this story? Yes. And well, I, yeah, I think he's sensing that there's a, un, un, a subconscious kinship that's developing here. And I also think, you know, you said the monologue comes out of nowhere. I think if you study Martin Landau's eyes, the monologue doesn't come out of nowhere for Martin Landau's. No, I agree. Yeah, yeah. totally. A hundred percent. It yeah. comes out of nowhere in terms of the back and forth that they're having that we're watching. But if you watch Landau's eyes on multiple rewatches, you can see that he is analyzing Michael. And it's ironic because he's saying, oh, I didn't know there was so much involved in card playing in terms of studying the man. But he knows card playing through his ability as a lawyer. And right. he's studying the man in Michael and understanding how to – like he would study a jury or study the uh, the defense attorney or the prosecuting attorney. He's doing that to Michael and doing the exact same thing that Michael uh, did to the judges and the lawyers there in that game. Mm. Yeah. Good point. I like the way you put that. Yours is a, a respectable profession. Not to my family. My parents were destroyed, devastated by my decision. My father sent me away to new york to live with distant cousins he got he said i don't want to be a rabbi and they kicked him out of the house his father never spoke to him again never spoke to him again which i'll be honest with you uh, someone i know that almost happened to them when they revealed a certain thing about themselves yep. to their father and i was shocked that that was happening in america in the 21st century uh but these things are these things. And that's sadly, sometimes religion can be quite exclusive, even though it preaches that it is inclusive. I am assuming I'm thinking of the same person in the same story. Yeah. And I was shocked too. Yeah. Like it just, I, because even said it's going to, I remember having conversations mm. before this happened saying, mm -hmm. look, it's going to be okay. Your family's going to love you no matter what. Yeah. And they didn't. They did not. And from what I understood, clothes were torn. Yeah, and I thought that only happened in the Old Testament. I didn't know that actually happened. I mean, people, people yeah. are people. It's 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 sad how much people can live up to your lowest expectations yeah. sometimes. You know. Yeah. Well, eventually, I, I I found my place, my life's work. What then? Well, I immersed myself fully. I studied the minutia. I learned everything I could about the law. I mean, I felt deeply inside that it was what I was born to do. What's interesting, by the way, is studying at the yeshiva and studying the Talmud isn't that different from studying law. Like the thing that made him so good at that at yeah. 12 years old is what makes him a great lawyer. Right. And did your parents get over it? No. I always hoped that I would find some way to change their minds, but they were inconsolable. My father never spoke to me again. Yeah. So... I absolutely agree with you. Martin Landau knows exactly why he's telling yeah. this story. Yeah. Why is he telling this story? To Michael? Yes. I think he's trying to get Michael to finally admit that law is not where he belongs. Yep, 100%. But he, won't, he won't admit it. And so he's and he can't force him because Michael's an adult. So I think he's just uh, trying to get him to look at himself and tell the story to get Michael to see, hey, man, this is 
the law. Because I imagine this isn't the first time he's done this. I imagine there were some missed classes during the nine months where he was recovering from the loss to Teddy KGB. I'm sure there were some missed classes even before then when he was kind of making that money to break up the stakes, those three stacks of high society uh, as well. So he knows that Michael is a good student when he's committed, but he's not 100% committed to the law. And someone who was willing to have his family turn his back on him can tell if you're as committed to the law as you need to be. You know, I think he never saw the Michael that he saw at that card game. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Like he saw this kid that he liked, who was smart, who was working I, hard, who he thought was, you know, showed some potential. But the guy that read everyone's hands blind at the card game, that is a person he never saw before. And I've had this experience a couple of times, both with students, but then also with friends mm. where like, I'm sure, you know, of course, you've had a friend debating some decision mm. and they give all the reasons why they shouldn't do the thing. And then they talk about the thing and their eyes light up. And you and you just go like, look, I under, you gave a whole bunch of reasons why you should do this other thing, yeah. but I could tell which one you really want to do, and you got to do that. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? What choice? The last thing I took away from the yeshiva is this: we can't run from who we are. Our destiny chooses us. My only other criticism, so, so I think the bottle of gin is weird. I don't quite understand why Mike showed up here. I love the scene. Here's my other criticism. I wish this fell a little later in the movie. Oh, okay. Because it's, I, I, I think it should be late. Mike should be more in the middle of it when he hears this speech mm. from the professor. That's just my feeling structurally. Okay. We find Worm who spits up some blood. What happened? Hey. She crossed her legs too fast, all right? Just mind your own business. Crossed her legs too fast? Did you remember what movie that's a quote from? I totally didn't. No, I don't. It's Chinatown. It's oh, Jack Nicholson talking right. about how his nose got hurt. Isn't that near the... Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I had no memory of this. Ed Norton said that he stole it from there in the commentary track. How is he on the commentary track, by the way? Is he a dick or is he all right? He is interesting and sarcastic. I wouldn't call him a dick. No, I wouldn't call him a dick. I'd say... But he definitely has a bust your balls sort of sense of humor, Ugh. you know, and they're heading up to Mike's apartment and he's asking Worm to kind of tone it down because of the tense stuff with his girlfriend. And they walk inside the apartment. And I love that they just have the camera on Mike with Worm in the background having a reaction. But we don't see what he sees. What did you get robbed? Um, not exactly. And now we all know like, oh, shit, she left him. Oh, my God. Mike, she made off with your sheets. <laughs> I always told her she'd be a good card player. I know exactly when to release a shitty hand. And Worm, you know, there's certain kinds of things you want to hear when your girlfriend dumps you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure all the things Worm says is what you want to hear. Oh, come on, Mike. Forget that, okay? This girl is obviously wrapped way too tight for a living. Yeah. But I also think that he doesn't get mad at Worm for saying all those things because he knows she's not the right girl for him. So, yeah, absolutely. In a way, it, the decision's been made for him. And what we see 30 seconds later, which is let's go play some cards, certainly proves the point. Not let's go win her back. Let's go find out where she is. Let's call her. Let's, you know, launch the offensive to try to get her back. No, let's go play some cards. Well, I mean, this is a movie that's really about destiny. You know what I mean? And yeah. she's not his destiny. Yeah, no. His destiny is to go play cards. Yeah. 
Um, and and what's so so interesting is Worm is saying kind of the same things that he's been saying since we met him of like, yeah. you need to go play cards. I mean, look at you. You, you domesticated yourself for this girl. No, you, you took yourself out of the life. You walked the fucking line for her. And the minute you want a little of it back, she walks out on you. But now the camera is sitting on Mike. You know what cheers me up when I'm feeling shitty? What? Rolled up aces over kings. And we hear the music start up. Is that right? Yeah. Check raising stupid tourists and taking huge pots off them. Yeah? Stacks and towers of checks I can't even see over. Playing all night, high limit, hold them at the Taj, where the sand turns to gold. And there's this long pause, and Mike says, Fuck it, let's go. Don't tease me. Let's play some fucking cards. Atlantic City, John. Oof. Yikes. Let's go to the Trump Taj. Ooh. And what we hear, we hear a little about the poker room at the Mirage in Vegas, and that's the, you know. Yeah. That's the center of the poker universe, but the poker room at the Taj might not be at that level, but there's still people come in and there's still a lot of money to be made. And there's a great coming down the escalator shot, which makes me think of Rain Man. Yeah. And it's so, again, Ed Norton is so great because you see the moment he sees that woman. Yeah. So he heads off with this girl. We walk into the poker room. We sit down and there is all his gang. This is beautiful. Welcome to the Chesterfield South. I'm all the way to Atlantic City just to see your mugs, huh? <laughs> and Petra says, Twice in one week. For someone who don't play, spend a lot of time in card rooms. Do you know right from the beginning that she's into him? I would say I know. I feel like it's in this scene you start to see that look. Well, no, I know from when she, he walks into the thing the first time to first time. stake worm. Yeah, there's a way a woman speaks to you when she's into you. And certainly uh, Famke is... Um, dropping those little hints when she's having the exchanges with Mike. And of course, later it becomes obvious. Of yeah, clearly they've had some prior relationship or sexual relationship in the Something. past. Yeah. Um, and there, of course, just to complete the picture is Kanish. This is what I like to see, huh? Mike McDermott where he belongs. Sitting with the scumbags, telling jokes, dragging the occasional pot. I love everything John Turturro says in this whole movie. His dialogue is just incredible. I was actually going to try and make some uh, real money tonight, but in honor of Mike's alley-like return to the ring, I'll sit with you all for a while. <laughs> it's a great reference, right, Ali, who returned yep. several times after he quote-unquote retired. Yeah, too many times. Too, well, one too many times, yes. True, very true. And the first thing is like, well, if they wanted to just take each other's money, they could have just stayed in New York. Yeah. But then we get this montage. Oh, that's a great montage. It's so joy- it's so joyful to watch these poor tourists, these poor innocent people, yeah. sit down at the table with sharks and get destroyed. And I always wonder, Steve, when people watch movies like this, do they see themselves in those people? You know, the the, the couple that's wearing the matching track suits or whatever, and the the uh, the other this kind of scummy guy with the mustache and the uh, the two executives who are there. And I love how Damon says. You know, they think, how could it be different from what they play with their buddies, yeah. you know? <laughs> so well, and they, I mean, like, to be fair, I would say in general, you don't usually pick a random table at the casino and sit down with five professional poker yeah, players. Yeah, true. true. <laughs> you know, yeah, you don't. I would assume normally the tourists outnumber the pros. Yeah. And I love, too, that, you know, he kind of says, look, we're not playing together. 
we're not playing against each other either. Yeah. You know, it's like you see, what do you say? You see, you watch those nature documentaries. The piranhas never eat each other. It's like, oh God, that's great. Um, by the way, there's a guy who sits down with a beard and there's another guy who sits down with a cheesy mustache. Yeah, yeah. And those are the writers in fake face. <laughs> that's great. And I love watching the like the couple start to argue with each other, the <laughs> businessmen just looking stunned and destroyed. They had no idea how bad they could lose. Enter Worm. Oh, just when it was all, everything was going nice. Yep. Here comes Worm. And you could tell everyone else at the table doesn't like Worm. Right. No, true. Very true. And Worm just manages to not ingratiate himself with everyone. Yeah. Uh, because he sits down and immediately takes half of Mike's chips. I'm sorry, sir. You can't take chips from another player at the table. Now, all he had to do was have Mike stand up, step away from the table and hand him the chips. Yeah. But he doesn't do that. He's rude to the dealer. What? Fuck this low limit shit, all right? Can we go get something to eat, please? I got comped at the noodle bar. Yeah. And then he insults Kanish. He says, you keep grounding out that rent money, Joe. It's noble work you're doing. But Kanish turns from him, and that's that's Kanish. Kanish doesn't have to engage with this nonsense because he knows that kid is going to die at some point. Like, oh, yeah. The way he lives his life, there's no use getting angry about it or coming back at him. It serves no purpose. Well, again, it's like, we might not want to live the Kanish lifestyle. Yeah. But Kanish has figured it out. He yeah. knows how he wants to live and he doesn't sweat anything else. That's what works for him. Yeah. By the way, the um, professional poker players said that this noodle bar was excellent and the best food you could get at the Trump Taj. <laughs> That's Just, funny. you know, good to know. I'm sure it's not there anymore, but it's not the Trump Taj anymore. So, hey, uh, Nick the Greek, um, what's with kiting my checks? I'm on empty, that's why. You are. You're tapped again? I mean, how much was the hooker? Because he didn't tell Mike that Grandma came and took all my money. Yeah. So Mike thinks it was the prostitute. Mike, please. Relaxation therapist. Okay? <laughs> and that's when he says, I ran into Grandma. He took everything he had. You're kidding me. Wait, who's he working for? And Worm does not tell him about Teddy KGB. Well, he's sort of, he's sort of out on his own. This fucker went around. He bought up all my debt. Grandma, that turncoat motherfucker. Are you kidding me? So what do you want? I don't know. My crazy fucking gorilla math, like 15. <laughs> my note here is Mike is so gullible to worm. He's so gullible to worm. Yeah. Yep. Well, you know, oh, you know, I just had a, a whole new thought. Mm. What is Mike's superpower? The ability to play uh, cards. And who does he read? What does he see that other people playing cards wouldn't see? Um, Oh, yeah. Uh, people's tells. Yeah. He can read people. Yeah. Except. Yeah, of course. He can't read worm. It's like, like everybody. You can't read that person that's next to you. You're blinded by care or love or whatever. Yeah, and that's... every single person around him can see who worm is. Yeah. And he can't. Why didn't you tell me that, man? Why, why did you not tell me that? I mean, I could I could have paid that off. I had the, I had the money. Hey, I'm not going to fucking sit in the can and have my friend paying down my debt. I'm not a leech. All right. What do you think about that? About which part? That he's not a leech? Or no, no. That, yeah, yeah. Do you think it's true? Do you think it was bullshit? Do you think he lied to him? About what? Now you got me confused. Okay, about the high society stuff. Do you think he lied to him? Like, oh, I wasn't going to have you bail me out, blah, blah, blah. Do you think he was fine being in jail? And as I said earlier in the first part, playing the long game, and he was fine having Michael on the hook for him. Like make, making Mike feel guilty and having Mike feel like he owes him because he knew down the road once he got out, 
he'd be able to use that. He'd be able to use Mike and use that as a way of holding it over Mike to use him mm. for what he needed him for. So I will start by saying that his statement, I'm not a leech, yeah. is bullshit. Oh, absolute bullshit, yes. You are a fucking leech. Like, I've watched you do nothing but leech yeah, full, throughout full. this thing. Yeah. So I think it's an interesting question that you're asking because maybe this is – I think – Worm has always got a vision in his head of how it's going to go. Yeah. And I think he had this idea in his head that when he gets back out on the street, he's going to make some moves, going to have tons of money right away and pay off all this debt himself. So, and if, and maybe what he's thinking, and maybe it is exactly what you say yeah. is that I need Mike on the hook to make these moves. So I, if Mike pays off my debt while I'm in jail, yeah. Mike might not feel like he owes me anymore. Yeah. Oh Yeah. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's the long game. He, yeah. If he if he had allowed Mike to buy pay him out, pay his debt, then A, he would have changed the dynamics of their relationship because then now he's in debt to him in a way. And which I think he kind of feels like he's the alpha dog in that relationship. And maybe he is, because Mike has certainly allowed him to, as we've seen in the movie, run over him through and use his sympathy for him or his feeling of like, oh, no one ever stood up for worm, which he says later on in the in the film. Uh, to, he's used that to his advantage. Worm has so yeah. changing the, the the dynamics of their relationship in having Mike be the one who pays off his debts and essentially is the alpha in the relationship would n- was never going to work for Worm. So yeah, I was debating whether where I was going to bring this up, but maybe yeah. this is a good time. Which is, I think, watching Matt Damon and Ed Norton is like a perfect example of the difference between a movie star yeah. and a character actor. Yeah, that's and, a good point. And the difference between a lead character in a movie mm-hmm. and a supporting character in the movie is that the character that Matt Damon creates for Mike is relatively simple, I guess would how he's not he's not doing a whole bunch of stuff. He's right. being the star of the movie. Yeah, yeah. And he plays everything relatively small. Like we see the position that we he's in, we see the choices that he's faced with and we yeah. understand what it's about. Whereas Ed Norton is doing all sorts of stuff. Yeah. You know, and it's it's funny. There is a reason why Han Solo is a more interesting character than Luke Skywalker in general. There's a reason why Morpheus is a more interesting character than Neo. It's sometimes the center of the movie. They have to hold up. They have to be more everyman-ish. Yeah. So that we can all feel like them rather than this, the supporting character. Yeah. We are back at school, and there are three judges waiting at the panel for their moot court. Yeah. I have done a moot court. <laughs> wow. Because I did constant when I was, it, it, it was funny. There's another thing I was thinking about whether or not I would bring this up, but oh. I did exactly what Mike did because oh. I wanted to be an actor. Yeah. And then I decided I wanted to be a writer director. And then as I was getting out of, or would be a director. And then as I was getting out of high school, I went, I shouldn't do that. That's too risky. So when I applied to Cal, I applied as a poli-sci major to oh, wow. become a lawyer. That was my whole plan was to be a lawyer. Right, right. So I took constitutional law classes. I took a lot of sort of domestic political stuff, military stuff, because the goal was to be a lawyer and go into politics. So I did moot courts in constitutional law classes. And the whole time I did that, I kept going over to the theater department and doing plays. Oh, wow. So, because yeah, so you weren't 100% committed. Yeah, yeah. I know. I never really – I. You know, I wanted to be, I really wanted to work in the arts. I just kept denying that for a long time. By the way, the African-American judge on the panel is a guy named uh, Vernon Jordan, who is a very famous lawyer. Yeah. 
I know Vernon Jordan. Wow, yeah. that's him. Associate of Bill Clinton's and yeah, yeah. Um, interesting, interesting. Okay. And they are waiting because Mike has not shown up. Yep. And he runs in late. He's obviously lost the respect of the judge whose respect he had earned by, you know, reading their hands. Yep. Lead counsel for plaintiff, Mr. McDermott. Please proceed with oral arguments now, if that is convenient for you. <laughs> and Mike flustered stands up because he's lead counsel and he says, Well, I think clearly the uh, the case which controls the issue at bar would be uh, Texas versus Johnson. And there is a reaction that goes around the room that he has messed up. Yeah. Because they had said, no, we don't want you to focus on that area of this case. We want you to focus on this. And Mike didn't know it. He wasn't at those meetings when they were prepping. He looks like a complete fool. And then one of his partners gets up and she takes over. Yep. It's really painful. It is painful to watch. And, you know, again, you think of the swingers moment. These these 1990s films... Nothing is as painful as the swingers' moment. Oh, no, nothing. You're right. It's, it's so, unless you're talking about ankling, those are oh, Jesus. those are pretty similar to me, in my opinion. Oh. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, you think about these these films in the 1990s. A lot of these films in the 1990s were about deconstructing the male mystique uh, with these dudes. Now, did it 100 percent translate over into how men were treating women or how men were embracing themselves. Maybe not a hundred percent. Right. Uh, but certainly with films like this, Goodwill hunting and other films, there's this breaking down of this idea of the hero coming in and saving the day or with little or no preparation, being able to fly by the seat of their pants and right. do it. The Han Solo mystique, shall we say? Sure. Uh, and then you watch something like this and then you watch something like Goodwill hunting or you watch something like swingers, you start to see the cracks in this generation of men. And what they're what they can do and what they cannot do. And so having this scene is really important for a number of reasons. One, clearly Mike is not cut out to be a lawyer, and there's an arrogance or even a privilege, you might say, even though he comes from hard scrabble background, that makes him think he can roll on in there and just fly by the seat of his pants with judges, three judges, for God's sakes. And it's a bit disrespectful to Martin Landau as well, who just finished telling that whole story. And of course, his girlfriend is there. Joe is there. And so He's coming in. These three people, um, their grades or their status in the legal community uh, is hangs on what Michael Mike can do there as the lead attorney. And you have to wonder: Did Mike lobby to be the lead attorney for this crew? I bet. And and I and I bet he I bet he did at the time because he wanted to impress Joe. He he knew he could lead the thing if he wanted to, but then boom, he's in the middle of this crisis and shows up and tries to do. Um, tries to do this basically with almost no preparation and gets smoked for it. Instead of fumbling around and figuring it out, the movie smokes him for it, which I really think is great. You know? I, I totally agree. And I, and I think too, think I have two thoughts. The first is how hard has Mike worked to be a good poker player? Yeah. Right. How much practice did hours he put and in? hours and hours. Yeah. I think Mike could be a good lead counsel in this scene, but he didn't put in the fucking hours. Nope. You know, he did not put in the effort to do this thing. That's the first thought I have. The second thought I have is on some level, I think Mike is getting along because he literally has movie star good looks and charisma. Yeah. Yeah. Great do you point. know what I mean? Yeah, he looks like the lead counsel. Yeah. And I think, you know, you've seen it and I've seen it. There are people that are uber charismatic and super good looking and shit just falls their way. Yeah. 
and shit fell his way to be the lead counsel and he blew it because at a certain point the rubber needs to meet the road yeah and he was not prepared uh we're leaving and he's trying to apologize and there's joe and she just walks away from him jeff what what i mean we're not gonna talk i mean you you left me pretty quick there make it sound as if it was my decision yeah it's an interesting take. I, I, it's funny. Joe, in a weird way, is like Kanish. She's like, "This is what I'll tolerate." Yeah. And this is, and there's no message negotiating on this. You're just gonna drop me like that? I learned it from you, Mike. I mean, you always told me that this was the rule. Rule number one: throw in your cards the moment you know they can't win. Which is what he said about her in the scene with Worm, yeah. basically. Look, this is our thing that we're talking about. All right, it's not some losing hand of poker. And she says, "I love this line." If you don't mind me cutting in, I love this line when she says, Mike, I know exactly what we're talking about. So it's just, it's an adult moment, right? Because she, she threw out that thing as kind of a, I don't know, a little bit of a shot and defense mechanism there and saying like, oh, you know, I learned it from watching you. I learned from watching you, dad. I learned it from watching you, you know, get away or leave a hand when, you know, you can't win. And he's thinking that she's still talking, that she's like in this, trying to see things through his eyes. Um, and kind of corrects her a little bit. A, a little bit, he's like trying to win the argument a little by saying, Joe, we're talking about my rela- our relationship, not a card game, as if she wouldn't know what the fuck they're talking about. And so that's why she stops him cold. And I love this delivery. I know exactly what we're talking about. It's great. It's such a great moment for Gretchen Mull, who doesn't get a lot to do in yeah. this movie. But she does have that moment here with him. And she makes it very clear. She's not coming back to him and that it's over. Well, and it's funny too, the whole like, hey, we're not talking about a hand of cards. We're talking about our lives. Yeah. What has he been doing the whole movie in his voiceover? Has yeah. been talking about how life is like poker. Yeah. You know, exactly. like poker is his metaphor for all of life. Yeah. Again, that's why I like this movie. It yeah. takes a chance to really come after its, its protagonist, even though its protagonist is a likable guy. He's got his own shit he needs to kind of confront. Yeah. Well, and the last thing she says to him is I mean, I'd say good luck, but. No, it's not about luck in your game. Yeah. That's like throwing some shit right back at him. Yep. True. Mike's back home and he is rewatching something he has obviously watched many, many times, which is Johnny Chan winning the World Series of Poker. And what it is, is that if this is my understanding, is he got the winning hand early, knew he had it, and then had to make it look like he didn't have such good cards to sort of draw his opponent into going all in. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. And that's also what's going to happen at the end of the film. So a little foreshadowing. Yeah. And as he's watching this, there is a buzz on his door and there is uh, Petra Femke Johnson, Mm -hmm. who is just, I just have to say everything she does is sexy. She is so sexy in this film, dude. You're right. So right. From the fucking jacket hanging off the shoulder. Exactly. All those little things. Chewing on the, chewing on, like when, even when she sips the drink at the table when they're playing poker, when she looks over at Mike, it is sexy, man. Yeah. And, and she comes in and immediately, and the great thing is, is she recognizes what he's watching. Yeah. 88 World Series, huh? Johnny Chan flops the nut straight and has the discipline to wait him out. And this to me is immediately like, well, clearly Joe was not the right person for you. No. You know, and they talk about that hand. What's interesting is Mike is watching the guy that loses. Yeah. Man, I know what that feels like. It's like a locomotive running through your stomach. I feel gut shot. Fuck it. You didn't come here to talk about this. What's going on? Tomorrow's a week. And he has no idea what she's talking about at first. A week or what? First 2,000, you're the Chesterfield. And 
this is again where you see Matt Damon's acting chops as you see him process that understand it we see that he didn't know yeah and then he goes oh that worm as if he did know right but then he needs to get do a little detective work on what happened and finds out that he won ten thousand dollars and didn't pay back the two grand he borrowed on mike's name and took it all yeah and this all happened before mike saw him and he said that he was totally tapped out yeah he didn't tell mike i won 10 grand and two of it's on you yeah it's a dirty son of a bitch, man. Yeah, Worm's a dick. Yeah. Wor- it's funny. Worm doesn't go into the stature of bad guys, of great bad guys of all time, like, you know, Hans and Snape and, you know, all these kinds of people. I just named two Alan Rickman characters or Darth Vader. He's not that. But he is the most irritating of e- of bad people in yeah. any movie I can think of. He just pisses me off. He's running you up just on a seven grand. Well, do me a favor and just put him on his own. Yeah. Yeah, cut him off. I love the casualness that he tries to get, sell that with. Yeah. Thanks for making it easy, Mike. Now, did she have to come deliver this message in person? No, of course not. I'm, uh, I'm sorry to be back over here for this reason. Don't worry about it. Back yeah. over here for this reason. So, like I said, she's been she's been stayed at this place yeah. before. No, I, I like being here. It's good to see you, Mike. And kisses him. She goes right in. Yeah. How does he feel about Petra? I think he likes Petra, but I don't think he sees Petra as a lifelong partner no. at all. But he does like her, respect her, but he, he never had feelings for her. Yeah. It's interesting because this character exists in this way because they cast Famke Johnson. As I think I said in the first part oh, yeah, that yeah. it originally was just supposed to be the person that worked at the Chesterfield. And then they cast this beautiful, charismatic person who actually could act, yeah. and they expanded the part. And I feel it's a little unresolved. Yeah. I guess. And then she exits and he's all alone. And then you see the reaction and he throws his glass against the wall and shatters. The kiss they have when she goes in for him and and he does let her kiss him for a little bit before he pulls back because he's still in love with Joe and he certainly doesn't want to open this door. He doesn't know what to do, which is a great little awkward moment. He like, he taps her on the shoulder twice. Like, <laughs> I'll come by and see you at the club, friend. Yeah. You know, it's like, oof. And she, I love the shot of this. By the way, John Dahl, we don't talk enough, we haven't talked enough about John Dahl's framing and the cinematography in this film. This film works so well because of the way the color, certain colors, even amongst the dungeness of New York, you know, the reds in Grandma's place, the greens, they're even in Teddy KGB's, the almost kind of darker yellows that are there yeah. around the area. It's great stuff. It's fantastic splashes of color amidst the grit and grime of New York. And even the shot here from where when she's leaving is from afar, from the end of the room all the way almost against the wall. And she looks even taller and stronger. And she grabs her bag and you can tell that she's embarrassed. Right. And so it's great framing that he uses. Mm-hmm. You could easily not just show her again and she walks out the door. But she, he does. I think they do a nice job of keeping that shot uh, there for people to kind of take a look at the embarrassment she must be feeling. And so when you see him throw that thing it has more ferociousness yeah from far away you know it's a great it's a great point and something we haven't really said this is in many ways a modern noir you know yeah yeah absolutely from the I music mean, to the camera yeah. movements to the yeah absolutely we're in the underbelly of the city in this mm-hmm. way i mean it doesn't have all the elements of a classic noir but it definitely is inspired by that genre yeah there's no femme fatale 
exactly. Yeah. So Mike shows up. Worm is the femme fatale. <laughs> okay, if you say so, but yeah. Um, Mike shows up at this big, it looks like the gym or, you know, gathering room for a church or maybe the school that they, yeah. I guess it's the preparatory school they were at. Yeah, yeah. Because that's where he can find Worm. And there's Worm with a basketball and Mike is pissed. Come on, I'll play your horse. 50 bucks a letter. Yeah, when I win, are you going to pay me back with my own fucking money? And Worm's trying to settle him down. You need to work on your accuracy, you know that? Will you stop fucking around for five goddamn minutes for once in your fucking life? Whoa, Jesus. What happened? My old man just walked in the door. I should fucking beat the shit out of you the way he used to. <laughs> so Mike is pissed. Oh, yeah. Finally. Do you think he's pissed enough to really see through Worm and stop trusting this guy? No. Not quite there yet. We still have an hour left in the movie. No, of course not. Remember when we found this place, man? Yeah, I remember when we found this place, when you were hiding out from Tobby Manzi because you thought he was going to fucking pound you into oblivion. Yeah, now see, what did I ever do to that guy? You fucked his mother. So here's the thing they talk about. So he had sex with this guy's mom who then wanted to kill him, and he had to hide out in this gym for a long time until somebody dropped a garbage can on his head. Yeah, Did yeah. Worm drop the garbage can on Tommy's head? Uh, oh, good question. I don't know. I never even thought about it. I thought he pissed somebody else off is how uh, Mike presents it. But I don't really know. Maybe. I I never had that thought until this last time watching it. But suddenly I went, I think it was Worm. Could be. Very well. Could be. Man, you're fixing to go down hard. It almost seems like you want to. Oh, come. You know what? Stop worrying so much about me, okay? I'm turning things around. I'm not going to let anybody drop a garbage can on my head. What are the odds that Worm ends up getting killed in his life? You ask me that now? Yes. 100%. Me too. I think so. 100 I mean, I don't think he makes it back to the city. Yeah, I think within, certainly within by the end of the movie, months or a year, he's dead. Maybe more of those cops. I don't know. No, no, you're, you're going to get out of the way. It's going to land on me. Which is true. I think if Mike doesn't extricate himself from Worm, Mike gets killed too. How much money do you have? 900. I mean, I caught a frozen wave of cards like you fucking read about. You gotta be kidding me. I mean, I think I'm getting you out of Hawk. I find out I'm seven grand in. Do you believe him? No, because he already, he didn't, he hasn't told him about, I mean, he might have caught a frozen wave of cards, but. Yeah, I don't believe him. I think he's lying to him and I think he's trying to squirrel away money. Well, and we know grandma took a whole bunch of money off of him. Yeah. Which he hasn't really told Mike the details of that. Ah, I mean, you're really jamming me up here, man. Seven grand. When he says, I mean, you're really jamming me up, you can hear. The anger is lessening. Yeah. And that worm is going to take advantage again. Yep. And they're outside and we hear in voiceover. And this is the key. I know all the reasons I shouldn't be here, but sometimes reasons don't matter. See, no one's ever stood up for worm. When you're with the wrong person, either romantically or friendship wise, you will come up with all kinds of reasons to defend that situation because the other side of it is you have to actually make the look at the fact that your judgment was off. Yep. And not a lot of people can confront that. And we all have to at some point. But when he's excusing him about, oh, no one ever stood up for Warren, blah, blah, blah. It occurred to me as he was saying that this time around, I was like, well, because nobody, because he wasn't a guy that anybody wanted to stand up for because he was shitty to every person he, um, whoever stood up for him. You know, he always, he was like, it's the scorpion and the frog. He is the scorpion on the frog. Oh, yeah. Always. And so that's why nobody ever stood up. And it's not because he would come from the wrong side of tracks or wasn't a good guy. Michael came, came from the exact same, or Mike comes from the exact same upbringing to a degree, although his parents were probably nicer to him than, than Worm's dad. But he is a well-liked guy, and there's a difference, you know? 
So there was a thing I learned as a Boy Scout while getting life-saving merit badge. Okay. And that was that the main rule of being a lifeguard Mm -hmm. is that you shouldn't drown. Is Ah, that that you're going in to save someone's life and that's what you should do. But frequently panicked drowners will push you underwater in order to try to save themselves. Yeah. And that your first priority actually is to keep yourself alive. You can't save them if you drown. Yeah. 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 And I think that's a key piece. It's just like you're on the airplane and you have to put your oxygen mask on before you put on the oxygen mask of the kid. Right. So now I say that I learned that piece of wisdom, but there's been several situations in life, one really bad one in particular that I can think of where I continually helped out a person. Oh, yeah. Because they didn't have anybody else. Yeah. And if I didn't help them out, it was going to be really, really bad. And I knew they were taking advantage of me. I knew they were treating me disrespectfully. I knew that my kindness was being abused and I kept doing it for years and years and years. Yeah. I mean, that's my, uh, that's my ex-girlfriend, you know, five years of, of, I have no friends. I don't know anybody. Help me. Okay. I help you. God, you want all the credit. It's like, ah, fucking hell. There's no winning. There was no winning. And you realized you got used up, chewed up and spat out so that someone could step on you to get to the next level for themselves. And you don't realize that when you're in that mix because you think you're actually doing a good thing. But people like that, like some, like the person you're referencing and my ex-girlfriend, they are they don't know that they're using people because they just kind of you know go through life doing that. Right. So it never seems odd to them. But that's exactly what they're doing, and they never apologize for it. Or you know, it's rarely the ones that actually go to therapy and deal with their shit and apologize. And you you're left with the lesson of never ever letting that happen to you again. Right. Hopefully, if you've learned the lesson, hopefully, never let that happen to you again because it is a terrible feeling, and you've west you've wasted so much time and money on that situation. I will say two contradictory things. Okay. The first thing is that I believe that part of what it is to be in the world and part of what it is to be a good person is to help other people. Yes. Is to be great. kind and caring, and there sometimes people are in need, and sometimes you can help them out, and that can be one of the great things in life that you can do is to be there for someone when they need you. Yeah. The other thing is you can't save anybody. No, you can't. And not if they don't want to be saved. If they don't want to be saved and they don't want to save themselves, you cannot make, and if you try, like, I'm going to just do everything I can to make this person be happy, it's just putting your energy into a bottomless pit. Now, it doesn't it's, mean yeah. people who are, like, who suffer with addiction or whatever, that's, you can be there for them, but if they don't want to save themselves, it's really hard to save them. But with relationships, it's it's exactly what Steve said. Yeah. But Mike is still trying to save Worm and he goes, <laughs> we got to go talk to grandma. So we show up at grandma's place, which is seems to be a house of ill repute, if you will. We find grandma in his office wearing some long red underwear, which is a funny choice, which was the actor's choice. And Mike has told Worm, let me do the talking. Is Worm going to let Mike do the talking? No, of course not. And, and the other thing, too, right away, he finds out that Worm was still lying to him. Oh, yeah. Because it's Grandma who says that he owes 25. Right. He has to play it off there in that moment as well. Yeah, yeah just like with Petra, he has to pretend like he's not surprised by that. Yeah. Uh, and he says, okay, look, we'll get you five grand in a week, and that, and you keep the juice going. Yeah. And Grandma's resisting it. And then there's this weird moment that you mentioned in part one where the dog is doing something. Yeah. And he does something cruel to the dog to put him in his place. Right. The dog is chewing on the couch, on the cushions of the side of the couch there. And uh, he, which dogs tend to do sometimes when they're pissed or they want attention. 
Uh, and um, hey, he, you only hear the sounds, and the sounds are no. Get in your hole, you bitch. Clear that he pushed the dog into the floor and then maybe kicked it something. into its cage or something, but it's rough, yeah. Uh, which clearly grandma is not a nice guy. No. Well, I'm gonna sell down that level R, Steve. <laughs> yeah. Grandma, look, we want what you want. We wanna we wanna square this thing. But three days, I mean three days is impossible. All right? I mean, look, no one's saying you're not the man. Just think of this as a business decision. Look, he just got out. Let's put him on a plan. No, 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 no. This isn't the money store, okay? We're not negotiating here. I tell you how it works. Right. But the thing is, he is negotiating. Grandma is about to negotiate. So you're looking for a little grace, Lester, huh? Some charity? And if at this moment, Worm had shut up or said, hey, Grandma, and said something nice, like, yeah, I'd really appreciate it. I know I've put you in a bad spot, but if you give me a couple extra days, I know we could. if he said something like that, they would have gotten the grace period. But he says... You know what, Grandma? I need your fucking charity like I need hey. your cock in hey, my Hey, shut ass, up. Will okay? you shut the fuck no, up? No, it's too late for him to shut no, up. No, it's hey. too fucking hey, late. Hey, hey, no, 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 listen, listen, no, listen. He's good for it. He's good for it, all he's right? Good he's good for, for it, Mike. It. If yeah. you think he's good for it, it's on you, too. Then it's on me, too. So here's the interesting thing. I don't know what this scene was supposed to be before. Uh-huh. But this is not exactly as what it was on the page. Okay. That Ed Norton did some th- some improvisation that was way more aggressive than what the scene was supposed to be which caused the scene to end in a much more violent, angry way yeah. than the way it was ending in the script. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Okay. But the moment that he says, you know, starts insulting grandma, it's just like, Oh my God, worm. I hate you so much. Yeah. Do you really think this is him? Cause what this leads to down the road after the thing with the cops, when he says, we got to go, man, we, we got to go yeah. on the road, you and me. Has is this? I mean, there's a way to look at this film like it's a love story with a jilted lover doing all the things he has to do to get his lover back to him. And you could argue that this, and, and of course, they're friends, there's no implication that they had any kind of sexual relationship. Right. But there, you could argue there's an angle here where he is doing all these things on purpose. So that all of Mike's possible connections and angles and avenues are shut off to him so that the only person he has to depend on is Worm. And in, um, what do you call them? In codependent relationships that are truly toxic, that is what an alpha does to, the or dominant does to the submissive personal relationship is uh, in very um, crafty ways, uh, manipulative ways, they slowly but surely cut off every avenue or connection they might have to get themselves out of this situation so that the only person they have that they can trust in the situation is the person who put them in that situation and has manipulated them them to stay in the situation with him. So even his reaction afterwards, right, when they walk out and he's like, why didn't you just shut the fuck up? And he just goes, I can't, you know, it's a grandma. I can't let him do this and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. So it, that's what he defaults to every time because he just did it in the gym a few minutes ago and he does the same thing here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So it feels like Worm is purposely doing all this stuff to put Mike in Dutch so that Mike is dependent on Worm and Worm can control the situation. So I never once in my entire life had the thought that you just described. <laughs> and as you were talking, I went, 
in a weird way, this is the only possible explanation for Worm's behavior because if Worm is smart, and, and Worm is a con artist, that's he's a what good, con artist. Yeah, you got to be smart to be a con artist. Well, he's but he's being a terrible con artist. Right, right. He's doing. He's making one stupid move after another. If he wasn't rude to Grandma, if he wasn't rude to Petra, if he wasn't, there's so many things he could have done. Yeah. And I think I think it's just what you say. And it's like sort of. And you do this in a game when you're playing a game sometime, even if you're playing poker, is you you commit yourself to a thing. Yeah. Now I don't have any more choices. I have to go through with this, whatever it is. Right. You know, and it feels like that's what he's doing. And maybe it is like either I'm going to win all the money and be free and clear. Yeah. Or Mike and I are on the run together. Yeah. Because look, look, even at the table that we just the scene we just spoke about a few minutes ago, at the table, he yanks Michael away from his people. Yes. And, and and insults Kanish, who is the one person who can get through to Michael above all those other people in the table. And he he's constantly denigrating Kanish. Uh he immediately when uh Joe leaves, he immediately goes in on Joe. Um, you know, oh, they all leave you, they all let you down, they all judge you, fuck them, they don't see what you can be, blah, blah, blah. So it's very manipulative yeah. in a toxic way. And yes, he, and, and putting him in Dutch with KGB, putting him in Dutch with grandma. Uh, he doesn't go after Mart Landau's character, but in essence, going out with him all the time to play is affecting his ability to be a successful lawyer at school. So there are things that Worm is doing that are more insidious than just fucking himself over and Mike in the process as well. He is legitimately shutting down all passable avenues that Michael has to get out of this situation. I think you're totally right. I hadn't thought about it until today, but I think you're totally right. Only came up because we were talking about it. I had never had that thought myself until we were talking about this, this film. So remember how I said that Ed Morton's improv changed the tone of the scene with yeah. Grandma, right? Well, we don't generally, frequently you don't shoot movies in order. They had already shot the next scene outside. Oh. But it didn't match anymore because Mike's anger level was too low. Right. Because they did. hadn't had this improv. So this is a reshoot. To, so it could match what had happened in the scene with Grandma. Well, that makes sense. Yep. Fuck, what are you I'm doing? Not, I'm not going to get down on my knees. For All that I circle. said is just keep your mouth shut for like five seconds. And Worm kind of pretends to apologize. I'm sorry. God damn it. Yep. Which makes no sense to me, right? I mean, like, why would he? But then that's a, that's a standard pattern to pretend to apologize. And. The thing about codependent relationships is yeah. that they know how to keep the other person on the hook. Yep. That's it, man. I mean, I'm really sunk now. Now, 15 grand in five days, man, I can do that. I've gone on rushes like that before. Uh. So he's in and we find out they got 1200 bucks between them. And he goes, okay, worm, you scout out the games and I'll sit in. And worm is like, Hey, if we do our thing, we can make the money a lot faster. And Mike refuses. He wants to do this straight up. Yeah. And then we start to hear the list of these games. And apparently, these are actually real games that are around New York. Look, there's a 3060 at the Chesterfield. There's, come on, listen, come on. There's the 4 a.m. in Woodside. There's the Greeks. All right, all right. There's a union game in Jersey. I know a guy whose cousin can get us in. All right. We start off in a union hall, and we see Mike, you know, makes a big bet and wins, and Worm is watching and smiling. We're at some fancy cigar place and talking about cigars. <laughs> and again, Mike wins. We're at a diner and Mike wins when the guys at the diner get all pissed off. Does this guy look like he could have three aces? Oh, it's so good. So funny. Yeah. And then we're at a fancier place and he's playing against a guy yeah. who 
makes a big bet and Mike folds with Worm watching. Yeah, yeah. And Worm drags him out. What are we doing in there? I didn't have it. Oh, you didn't have it? What does that mean you didn't have it? Since when do you have to have it to take a pot off a hump like that? Now, here's a question. Mike's explanation is I was waiting the guy out. I'm drawing him to a false sense of security. Then I'm going to take him down. Yeah. And Worm's explanation is you've lost it. You're tired. Right. Which is true. Um, I think Mike is telling the truth. And I'll say this. And I'll say why. Because I think that he is working out what he's going to do down the road. Remember, he had watched the Johnny Chan stuff. And so he was what he says to Worm was, I was going to drag him out and then cut off his legs. Right. And that's essentially what he's doing here. And it's almost like a dry run at his ability to do this. So I almost feel like this scene, if this scene doesn't happen and this moment doesn't happen, he's not as uh, knowledgeable about how to do it with Teddy later on in the final match. And so this moment here where he kind of stumbles and a lot of people compare this movie to a sports picture, which I can see. So this moment here is when you think, okay, they're going on this run and then they take a loss, an unexpected loss or a tie. And that kind of makes you go, Oh, wait a minute. Can they do it? Can they still do it? It puts the doubt in the audience's uh, minds. So it's kind of a cool scene. Plus the guy is such an arrogant prick. It works so well, especially when what's face walks out to, uh, worm and says, you know, get some real jewelry, cheap ass yeah. fucks. You know, it's great. And so they go out and, and Worm takes him to that place. But yeah, I, I think Mike was working out doing this. So Mike is of two minds right now, you know. And, and so um, it, Worm was right to pull him off, but Mike would have played that out all night, probably. My, my guess, I'm kind of more team Mike on this just mm-hmm. because it's not about winning one hand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's about winning the whole thing, you know, and that Mike in the long run would take this guy out. Right. Like that. But I also think that worm saying that you've been up 64 hours straight. Jesus Christ. Man, uh, how in your youth, that's three days. Did you, could you, how were you on minimal sleep? Yeah. never, never. I mean, I did. I, my first trip through college, which is, was, was just an absolute train wreck from top to bottom. I was able to do 24 hours without sleeping or, and I guess longer cause you go into the next day, but I was never able to do multiple days of not sleeping. No fucking way. It can't, it's not possible for me. My body needs at least four hours at some point to be able to exist. Um, and now older five or six hours. If, if I get a good five or six hours, I'm good for the day, but I don't need to nap or nothing. But the, um, yeah, when I was younger, I could never do more than one night, one night, um, without sleeping because I just would be an absolute wreck after that. In my youth, when I was in film school in my mid twenties, an all nighter was like a normal thing. I did them <laughs> all the time, all the time because it was Ugh. just like, and it was just like, I guess I'm just going to particularly with editing. It's mm. like, I guess I'm just going to be up all night doing this. And there were certain sections where I went like no sleep an hour sleep, then another day with two hours sleep, then no sleep again. And I did do two or even maybe made it to three days without sleep. Yeah. And I literally got to the point where I started to hallucinate. Yeah, of course. You know, it is not, it's not good. And what's funny when I got into my thirties and definitely in my forties, I go like, well, I guess I have to pull an all nighter. Nope. My body does not do that anymore. <laughs> You're not pulling all nighter. Uh, 
but their solution is to go get a, a nice shave. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And by the way, having a conversation while I do it as a straight razor at my neck is not something I would do. Well, this conversation is so interesting, too, because he's talking about, well, no, we can't show up short because grandma will, will kill us and put us in a hole in the ground somewhere that no one's ever going to find. I imagine these barbers have heard worse. Sure. So they're just rolling with it like it's no big deal because as long as they're not involved, it doesn't matter to them. It doesn't affect their life. That's New York. Um, but have you ever had a shave like this? It is excellent. Once it was not. Oh, that's a shame. So here's my story. Okay. I wasn't going to tell it, but since you asked. Yes. Um, you remember the time when I lost all that weight? Yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. sure. I decided that, you know, and I almost always had a beard. I had, grew my first beard when I was like 19, and mm-hmm. there had been very little time that I didn't have a beard. And I said... When I lose 50 pounds, I'm going to shave my beard. Right. And I went, I'm going to get an old-fashioned shave, which I'd never had. So I'd lost 50 pounds, and I go, okay, I want to find, I want to go get the shave. Where is the right place? Because I didn't want, I wanted to go to the good place, like the old school place, right? Yeah. So I went, I bet I should call where rich people are. So I called around in Beverly Hills. I'm like, in Beverly Hills, there's going to be that guy. Because yeah, I'm only going to do this once. And I call up a barber shop right in the middle of Beverly Hills, and I say, do you do old-fashioned shaves? He says, Sure. I come on over. The place is totally empty. Yeah. It is a little bit off the rich area. It doesn't look that nice. And the guy, the only guy in there, the barber is like 85 years old. (laughs) And I should have turned around and left. Yes. I did not. He's doing the shave. Literally, his hand is shaking. Oh, God. And he's leaning over me going. (sighs) Oh, my God. (sighs) And what happened is this going on? And I'm going, Okay. This is literally gone from being this pleasurable thing that I'm treating myself to is this to becoming a painful rite of passage. He cut me many times. Of course. I was bleeding. Well, the thing I realized was if you've had a beard for a decade and haven't shaved that skin, it's really, really sensitive. Oh, sure, sure. So I had a brutal experience (laughs) the one time I got an old-fashioned shave. Well, that was not my experience. I've had it twice now. Once downtown in L.A. and once in New York in the 1990s with a friend of mine. We had gone up there after he had had a terrible breakup. Uh, He was supposed to go to New York. I think I might have told the story real real quick. He he, he had tickets to go to New York to see uh, Ray Fiennes in Hamlet. Hmm. Uh, And so his girlfriend and them had broken up. So he had a hotel room. He had tickets. He had all of this. So I essentially went as his pseudo date for the trip in new york and hung out and we uh you know we went to a you know bunch of places went to strip club and then went and had the uh, and then went and saw the play which was great and then uh, had our um had our beard or had our faces shaved at one of those new york places which was an awesome experience so i've never had any negative experiences with this i'm sorry you did because well that is un- that is sounds horrible I, I, I do believe, though, that horrible things are often worth it for the stories that you have to tell. Yeah, that's certainly enough. a funny story. Um, true. Uh, but their shapes seem to go okay. And the thing we hear about is this great game in Binghamton, yeah. which is like five hours away, where there are all these what Worm describes as municipal workers. Oh, this son of a bitch. I mean, horrible, horrible what he does. Yeah. Because we decide it's worth it if we drive for five hours and we pull up and there is a whole bunch of cop cars. Yep. Municipal Just like workers. you, they should have also turned around and not gone into the establishment. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Give me like eight hours. Come back at 7, 730. Yeah, I, I was thinking, I'm going to do for eight hours, right? Why don't I just come in? I'll sit for a little while. Just no. 
No, no, not a chance. He goes in alone. There's a, you know, password to introduce himself, sits down, starts playing. He's winning. And then as he's winning, and I love the way John Dahl shot, shoots this, which is we're on Mike's face and we hear Worm enter. We don't cut to him. Yeah. We just hear, we watch Mike as he hears Worm come up. Holy shit, that's a hell of an elk. Hey, fellas. Hey, there. Hey, Met this guy down at the bowling alley. He says he likes to play little cards. And there are some great actors in this scene. The guy who's the uncle with the vest on, the one who's not dressed in the cop uniform, he's been in a number of projects. You know, uh, She's Out of My League and all these other films that he's been in. Um, and then David uh, Zayas, who is there next to him, was on Dexter as a series mm-hmm. regular for years, uh, who's Osborne and shakes his hand. And the dude next to him, the blonde dude, the guy who ca- catches Worm, I work with that guy. Oh, really? Um, yeah, for a few days on a show um, back in the early 2000s. Really nice guy, but super intense. <laughs> super well, intense. Show in this scene. Yeah, he's a super. So it wasn't a stretch to cast him, but he was a super intense dude. So <laughs> I wasn't um, surprised when I saw him. And Mike, Mike was doing great. He said he was up 4,200 bucks. Yeah. You know, so they're on their way to making it, and the dread. That you feel. I mean, there's such a sense of inevitability when Worm comes in. Yeah. Just go, oh, shit. And he sits down and he's dealing. And Mike looks at his cards and sees that Worm dealt him three kings. Yeah. And he folds them. Yep. And Ed Norton does an incredibly good job of being pissed, acting like he's covering up being pissed. You know, like all the layers that he's playing in this moment, he plays really, really well. Yeah. Great. Uh, and it's super tense and uncomfortable and worm is dealing again. And Mike gets a pair of sevens and that blonde guy that you mentioned, yep. there's a cut, multiple cuts to him. And at first you go, wait, is that guy watching worm? He's- oh shit. He's watching worm. Oh yeah. He's definitely watching worm. <laughs> he's so intent staring at him. Yeah. And talk about intensity when he grabs his wrist. Oh yeah. What are you doing? Give me the deck. What's what the trouble? You- Relax, man. Don't get so agitated. Looks like we got a road gang here. And then this other cop came up, who's clearly like the leader, you know. What the hell's going on over here, Stu? This son of a bitch is base dealing. Caught a hanger, Sarge. What? A hanger? What what are you saying? I don't even know what you're saying. You're saying you're dealing off the bottom of the deck. Oh, God. Come on, guys. Jesus. What did he give him? We see it's seven of hearts. You boys professionals, you working? And Mike is trying to talk his way out of it. Hey, no, listen, listen. I was winning before this guy got here. Which is perfectly true. And this cop comes up with a very simple test. Okay, okay, let's let the cards do the talking. The seven didn't help you. We'll listen to what you have to say. Ozzy, turn the cards. And they turn it over and see those pair of sevens. Yeah. And then they see the ace on the bottom of the deck. Yeah, and that's it, that. And Worm gets up and says... All right, take it easy, take it easy now. Aren't you supposed to, like, read us our rights? And they punch him right in the face. They grab Mike. They throw him to the ground. And 20 cops on top of these guys beat him up. Which carries a whole whole different weight now in 2022. But certainly when you were watching it back in 1998, that is a brutal, brutal situation to be in. Just in a random place, nobody knows you, and all these cops know each other, and they are kicking the shit out of you. you And I have two distinct thoughts. Thought number one is I'm against violence. These are police officers. They should arrest them. They shouldn't just beat the crap out of them. You can't arrest them, though, for cheating at a card game. That's I don't think that's a violation of it. I'm sure you could. 
you could even find something else to arrest them for, yeah, probably sure. like violating your parole or something. Oh yeah, like that. that that you can actually yeah, fair possibly certainly violating his parole. Yeah. Um, yeah. but I also my other thought is you are a bunch of fucking stupid morons or worm is a moron who went to the worm. cops game yeah. and decided to try to cheat them. They were desperate. So you understand why Mike went in there because there was no other options. But worm is the fucking idiot who was at the bowling alley. And instead of turning it down to head back to that municipal game, he comes in with the guy thinking he can trick the situation. And this is, this is Worm wanting to be a part of this situation. But once again, if this is a whole thing that's been manipulated by Worm, he probably tried to find the guy who would have the connection to this game so that he could get invited to this game. So he may have been at the bowling alley, and as soon as he saw this cop, he's like, okay, I'm going to find my way in uh, to this game. And so he may, who knows if this is the first guy he spoke to or the fifth guy he spoke to. Right. But he eventually found his way into the game because this is it's way later on. Yeah, the worm shows up. So that is really intriguing as well. And then when all that shit goes down, he's the first one to fully admit that they've done it. He doesn't protest. He stands up and goes, don't you have to read us our rights? So he immediately goes, read us our rights. So immediately uh, gives up Mike yeah. uh, in that situation. And so they kick the shit out of the both of them. And Michael, Mike fall, like crumbles or stumbles out of there. They throw worm on his back. Yeah onto the gravel street or the asphalt, which is a fucking rough landing. So clearly there is um, a lot here. And you wonder if Worm has manipulated the situation so that once again, all the money is gone now and he's got no one to rely on, but Worm. So two things. The first is, is that I love that we have these two poles because we have condition Worm and I've just figured out a good way to explain it, which is like, if there's so that you're playing the odds, Kanish is always going to play well below the odds, well within its safety limits, yeah. and never push it. And Worm is always going to play well above the odds. Everything has to go right. And then I'll bring down a big win, but I'm taking much higher risks. So going out and cheating is way higher risks with possible higher rewards. And yeah. Kanish is never going to get beaten up. He's not going to make a big score necessarily, yeah. but he's not going to get beaten up. Uh, the other thing, by the way, they recover way too easy from this beating. I oh, mean, even yeah. Oh, in, yeah. even in this scene where Worm is looks like he's knocked unconscious, yeah. they just get yeah. There's blood on their face, but they're just get up and arguing. They don't seem like they're injured at all, and they don't seem like that for the rest of the movie. No, you're right. One other thing about this scene is when they scouted the location. It sounds like the location manager really messed up because they didn't realize until they were shooting that this was in an airport route. <laughs> and so every few minutes, there's a plane going overhead, which kills sound. And so what they do, you know, you have a spotter who's going, all right, plane's coming, uh, you know, now shut down. Okay, the plane's out. Okay, let's try to get our scene done before we lose our sound again. Yeah. And they get up. And the first thing that Worm says is, you should have played those kings, Mike. Like it's Mike's fault for not cheating. <laughs> and Worm thinks he might have $300 in his boot. And starts to make excuses about not uh, never caught a hanger before i had him hey i'm sorry we got banged up all right i took a shot and i missed that happens man the excuses yeah of course that's all he has yeah instead of a sincere apology fucking happens all the time around you and what it doesn't happen to you you're the guy who flushed his whole fucking bankroll on one hand oh, hey, Mike. fuck you man that was different why why explain that to me and i'm like no that is different yeah 
He's not cheating. Yeah. And he was real. He could have won that hand. He was real close to winning. Right. But this is once again, this is what toxic people do and codependent people do is they take your attempts at trying to break from the norm or your attempts to try to better your situation. And if you fail at it or don't succeed at it initially, they use it as a way to keep you down and keep you believing that you're never going to succeed. So, and make you feel foolish for even trying to get out of the situation, you know? Cause he does say like well, a few seconds later, I think he says, what are you, your king shit? You think you, you think you're better than me or whatever he says uh, right afterwards. So this is clearly a thing. I'm sure that worm heard about Mike and what happened at Teddy KGB. Oh, I thought that. oh no, I'm sure worm heard about that. And so that was, so worm had a, an ACE to play, so to speak. And now he pulls it out to play on Mike here as a kind of final thing of either being like, look, look at you trying to be better than me. You're not better than me. You're just like me. Let's get out of here. Let's, you know, grind it out and it, it, ironically grind it out and, and hide away from KGB till all this blows over. So he's trying to manipulate or trying to dis- destroy Mike's self-esteem to make him more easily manipulated by Worm. Well, if he knew about him losing the money to KGB in prison and yeah. then lied about not knowing when he talked to Mike about it, mm-hmm. that totally goes to your theory yeah. of this is all a setup to get Mike. Because if Mike has $30,000 in his pocket, none of this is a problem. Yeah, he it's doesn't the, need him. Yeah, it's the well, and you can't break Mike because Mike just pays off the debt right. and that's over. But if Mike is broke, then all of this can manipulate Mike until finally they have to skip town together. Or, or Mike, if Mike wins, if Mike wins instead of um, crashes and burning at Teddy KGB's, he's off to the World Series of Poker and he doesn't yeah. need Worm anymore. Right. If, he, if he's successful. And there's nothing toxic people hate more than having someone that they're used to being their submissive break out from them and establish themselves independent of them because it breaks the hold. And so that's a part of this as well for what Worm is doing. We owe 15 grand in a day and we're broke. What do we do? It's easy. We get the fuck out of Dodge, all right? I'm really continuing to think about maybe part of this was Worm's plan all along. Yeah. It's an interesting idea. Because the, the other approach is that he's just an, that Mike is just kind of a trusting idiot, and I don't want to believe that from a guy, as you said earlier, who is able to read people. And yes, when people are close to you, it sometimes it is tough to read them because you're clouded by your affection for them. But words red, worms red flags are so obvious oh, yeah. that it becomes a situation like, well, what is going on with Mike that he wouldn't see it? So I prefer to th- think of the other options that Worm has kind of um, planned this out from the beginning, just like he fooled those. <clears throat> fellow prisoners before he left prison by tricking them into playing cards into losing their cigarettes and then walking out with them and throwing them into the dumpster or into the trash. It's he manipulated that situation so he could come out on top and even come out on top and make them feel shitty. Yes. And then toss away the winnings because that's not what matters to him. The winnings aren't what matters to him. It's being above people and making people feel shitty and making them pay for the fact that he's a fucking loser. You're, That's what I feel like his mentality is always. You're, you're literally like, it's like it's like we're two brains at this moment. Because every <laughs> thought that you get is like in the direction of taking me to the next thought. Which is because I think you're totally right. And I think that like what actually I think is happening is 
Worm has zero self-esteem. Yeah. Hates himself. And his only way of feeling better about himself is to bring other people to his level or of course. below. That's what people do. Yes. Yeah. And so the cigarette thing with them is going, no, they're just they're just like me. Yeah. You know, and right. now what is he doing to Mike? He is trying to turn Mike into him. Yes, absolutely. You know, bring him down to my level. You thought you could break out, but honey, you can't. Yeah. And you shouldn't try because yep. no one will believe you and no one will believe in you like I will. No one will be by your side. If you keep doing this. You're just setting yourself for hurt. Just stay here. And that's how they get you. It's well, some people are so fucking horrifically toxic and uh, sociopathic that it is um, it, it's, it's unsettling when you when you hear the stories about people like that. Well, and I just, you know, you ask people like, did you have fun in high school? I think high school with Mike. That was the peak for Worm. That was the happiest yeah. time in his okay, life. Cool. Yes, yes. They were. He had his best friend. They were two peas in a pod running scams together. It was the best. Yeah. And That's I bet it was Worm who came up with the idea of convincing the team to throw the game. Yeah. yeah. Michael just went along because yeah. he's friends with Worm. We'll hit the road. We'll be up again in no time. This will all blow over. We'll have a ball. Not a fucking chance I'm going to live like that. Listen, you talk to Grandma. You get him to stake me. And one one thing, by the way, because they keep talking like Grandma will kill him. That doesn't make any sense at all. If you ki- if you if you kill the person that owes you money, you have committed murder and you have nothing. Yeah. Like the whole point is you ha- you need to keep them alive to keep making you money. Right. It's not going to work. Okay. We're not dealing with Grandma. And there's a music sting and a reaction. He said Grandma's on his own. He told me Grandma's on his own. KGB Bank Golden. And I love this exchange. So you just fucked us right in the ass. Yeah, all the way. Okay? So you see what I'm saying? No fooling around. It's highway time. Think about that. He waited. Yep. Till Mike was completely out of options to say, by the way, we owe KGB, not just Grandma. Yep. So he is... He gives Mike information on need to know basis to keep pushing him towards a certain end. Uh, and Mike, in this moment, finally, like Tina Turner escaping that fucking limousine, <laughs> Michael breaks out finally and gets the fuck out of there. I think your theory is 100% correct at this point. <laughs> like the idea, this has all been worm manipulating Mike yeah. for this moment. Mm-hmm. Are you with me or not? No, I'm not this time. And I love the end because we're going to leave Worm behind in the dark. And Worm says, hey, at least you're rounding again, right? You're going to thank me for that someday. That's that's what the toxic people say, right? At least you're doing this. You're going to thank me for this one day when this experience or being, you know, surviving me trying to fuck you over for years. You're going to thank me one day because I woke up this piece of you that wants to fight for your life. And it's like. Fuck you. <laughs> you're lying and you're lying to yourself. But that's the shit you tell yourself. So you don't hate yourself when you look in the mirror, at least not to the level to where you kill yourself. But you hate yourself enough. And so you try to find a way out of it by making it seem as if what you did was the right is gaslighting. Right. That's what yeah. it basically is. And so. Um, so, yeah. So Worm loses that hand, you know, in, in this game for Mike. Um, well, and see you when I see you is from, you know, he says that in Ocean's 13. Hmm. Well, and I mean, he loses Mike. I don't think these guys ever see each other again. Oh, hell no. And and leaving Worm in the middle of, you know, Bington or whatever. Yeah. Outside the cop's place where he just got the shit beat out of him with, you know, 300 bucks in his pocket. Yeah. And nothing else. Worm's in a bad spot. You know, 
Oh, yeah. And I think it's a really interesting exit for this. We're never going to see this guy again. Yeah. You know, because the movie's not about him. The movie partially is about getting away from him. Yeah. And he goes to see Grandma. So you bought my money? I'm a little short. How short? The whole way. And he tries to negotiate with him. You want to take it up with KGB? You go right ahead. Otherwise, you got one day, and this will feel like a Swedish massage. And closes the door on him. So now we end up at the uh, Russian-Turkish baths, which this is a real location in uh, New York. And apparently, according to the commentary track, there were services being provided at this establishment for the gentleman who showed up. And they were continuing to do that while they were shooting. So in back room somewhere at the Turkish baths, there was stuff going on. <laughs> and he goes to find Kanish. What do you need? 500 grand? Huh? I need, I need 15,000. When someone comes to you and asks you for $15,000, that is I, a... I don't even know what I would say to that. And when he says 15 grand, everything changes. Yeah. Particularly when he says... What kind of trouble you in? I'm the worst guy. With the worst guy. KGB. And then Kanish, I feel he feels he is justified in an extended, I told you so. Yeah, kind of, yeah. And he starts to give the lecture. And at first, Mike is totally taking the lecture because Kanish is right. Yes. And then. You know, this is one time I don't need you to tell me how I fucked up. I know I fucked up. What I need from you is money. I need whatever money you can give me. And Kanish says, and I think this is fascinating. He says, this time there is no money. I give you two grand, what's that buy you? A day? Nah, I give it to you, I'm wasting it. I'm throwing it away? Yep, it's throwing it away. <clears throat> and I think, again, Kanish has his rules. Yeah. And this is the rules. You did it to yourself. You had to put it all on the line for some Vegas pipe dream. Hey, I took a risk, I took a risk. You, you see all the angles, you never have the fucking stones to play one. Who said that line before? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Worm said that. Yeah. I love the way Kanish, when John Tatura comes back oh, at him. So great. You little punk. I'm not playing for the thrill of fucking victory here. I owe rent, alimony, child support. I play for money. My kids eat. I got stones enough not to chase cards, actions, or fucking pipe dreams of winning the World Series on ESPN. It's a great speech. It is. And also, these are two different, and these are people in two different situations. Right. As you said, Kanish probably lost it all, lost his wife. So that's why he pays alimony, pays his. I don't know how you state that in a court document with winnings from gambling. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, and and then feeds his kids and whatever off off what he's making. So it's a different situation. Mike can have the pipe dream because he doesn't have those responsibilities, you know, kind of in this. So it's two different approaches. But, yeah, Mike, Mike is kind of breaking out from the Kanish thing. So he, for the first time ever in the movie, he kind of goes back at Kanish and insults him a little bit. And Kanish lays it on the line because he didn't respond to, to what's-his-face, to Worm, because he didn't give a fuck about Worm. But right. Mike is a different scene. So that's why he comes in, you fucking punk. You know, and so he, he puts him in his place to a degree. And this causes Mike to tell the story about Johnny Chan and give Kanish a little more perspective. Before we get to that, you know what I just flashed to, and I know you will appreciate this because you love this moment as much as I do, Yeah, is Charles Bronson with the kids in The Magnificent Seven. Yeah. When they insult their father. Right. right. And he says, and he spanks him and says, You think I'm brave because I carry a gun? Well, your fathers are much braver because they carry responsibility. 
for you, your brothers, your sisters, and your mothers. And this responsibility is like a big rock that weighs a ton. It bends and it twists them until finally it buries them under the ground. And as nobody says they have to do this, they do it because they love you and because they want to. I have never had this kind of courage. That's what Kanish is saying. Your father's you know. have a kind of courage I never had. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, he, he does it. He tells them the truth to those kids. And those kids have, and that's why his death resonates even more so by the end. Yeah. So, and then as you say, he tells this story about being at the casino and there is Johnny Chan, <laughs> the greatest poker player in the world. Now, by the way, I knew nothing about Johnny Chan. I'd never even heard the oh, name neither, Johnny Chan before. Neither, I had I. neither had I, man. Yeah. But they build him up to like, like a god. Oh, yeah. And that he see, and what he talks about is like, you know, tourists, people would like to come just to lose money to the great player. Yeah. And it was funny, something, I think they said it in the commentary track that I found really interesting, that poker is the only thing, really, where any total nobody can walk in and sit down with one of the great players of the world. Like, you can't, you know, challenge LeBron James to a game of pickup. Yeah. You know what I mean? Some ordinary schlub who's 60 years old is not going to do that. But you can sit down with a great poker player. Yeah. He and Mike tells this story about sitting down. I love the way they do it, by the way, which is that as he's narrating the story, we're literally seeing exactly what he's saying. And it reminds me of, you know, when you're listening to like a song and that the guitar riff and the melody that the singer is singing are exactly the same. Yeah. That's what this feels like as we're watching the visuals and the description. And that basically the story he tells is that he raises on Johnny Chan and Johnny Chan tries to bully him out of the game and he stays and he bluffs the great Johnny Chan and wins the bet. What did Johnny Chan, Chan say in the commentary about this scene? Did he have anything to say as you were listening? Well, th there's this moment where Johnny Chan asks, did you have the cards? I don't know, John. <laughs> Johnny Chan said, and the, all the poker players said, you would never have asked that question, ever. <laughs> uh, he also says he doesn't think he would have folded against that hand. <laughs> I love that. That's so great. The pride of the great ones, man. It's great. And Kanish's, Kanish's reaction to the story is great. Put a fucking move on Chan, you son of a bitch. Yeah, it's almost respect. Oh, yeah. So that's why you made that run at KGB's place. And this must have been burning Kanish up. Like, yeah. dude, I've trained you. Well, not trained you, but I've, yeah, I've guided you and I've given you, you know, I've helped you out in down moments, blah, blah, blah. Why would you do this? Why would you do this? Why would you blow it like this? It must have really kind of bothered Kanish for a long time. He never really asked Mike either because maybe he respects that a man's going to tell you things when he tells you things. And so he finally gets this answer and it changes his perspective on the whole thing. Not enough to give him 15,000, but certainly enough to understand why Mike did what he did. I, again, I'm going to go back to what I said at the very beginning, which is it's so great having Kanish and worm as like the angel and the devil on his shoulders. True. And that Mike has got to find his path. He's not going to go Kanish style and grind it out, yeah. but he's not going to take the kind of risks that worm takes. He's going to find who he's supposed to be, which is what the whole movie's about. And I like to that he said that Kanish says, "Well, then I'm rooting for you, Mike." Yeah, I'm not going to give you the money, <laughs> but I'm rooting for you, which is great. We're at the professor's office, and the first thing Mike says is, "I think we both know I'm not a lawyer." I hope my story didn't discourage you. Which is like, no, that's why you told him the story. Yeah, you did, but you don't want the responsibility. Hello, you in trouble? Yes, sir, I am. Um, not with the law. I vouch for the for the wrong guy. Um, so now it's on me. I understand. 
So, what will it take for you to be free of this? That's an offer to help. Yeah. And then Mike says, I need 15000 tonight. Mike! Michael! Mike! <laughs> Landau's reaction is so, like, I, I, I don't make that much money, Mike. Like, <laughs> I'm not a rich man. You know, I hate to see you like this. I want to help you, Michael, but $15,000. I, I... It's a great scene because at this moment, Mike goes, yeah, I'm not going to get it. Obviously, this is a shot in the dark. It's not going to happen. And he, there's a pause and he says, if it must be tonight, 10 is the best I can do. That's great. Yeah. And I think if you watch, watch Matt Damon in the, the <laughs> guilt and the emotion and the yeah. The shame, air, the shame, shame yeah. and love for this professor sure. Sure. and admiration. It's all there. When my mother let me leave the yeshiva, it nearly broke her. But she knew, she knew the life I had to lead. To do that for another is a mitzvah. And for that, I owe. So is the mom. Sure. For that, I owe that just yeah. it's right at the edge of making me cry. Oh, I, yeah. I didn't quite start bawling, but... And well, I wrote down, he's such a good fucking actor. It is. It's the pause. Yeah. And for that, I owe. That's mm-hmm. great. The pause there is perfect. You know, it lets the moment sit for just a second, just a beat. And then he, he drops the I owe there. It's, it's so great. And, and this is a perfect example. People often ask me, like, well, how, how, why do you say you're Jewish if you're an atheist? And this character is why. He's an atheist too. Yeah, it seems like. Yeah, but yeah. he is so Jewish. Like that is what it means to be a good Jewish man in my mind. You know, and all and all the qualities that I would aspire to of educated, generous, kind, yeah, you know, thoughtful, all those things. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what that's what it means to me. So you take this money and you get yourself out of this trouble. You hear me? And Matt Damon's emotionally filled response of the promise that I'm going to pay back where see him get out a bunch of hundreds. And this is, again, it's a great structure of a movie because we are right back at the beginning of the film. Yeah. And we end up at that metal door. Just walking in here makes me queasy. The brick walls, the fucking mopes at the tables, the musty smell. I feel like Buckner walking back into Shea. That's a great reference. Even though he's a, he's a fucking New York guy. So why would he make a Red Sox reference? I'm going to let that go. Um, that's Damon being Damon. No. So so it's well, not. Damon didn't want to say this line. Good. Because it's about a Boston. I, yeah. My understanding, you know the reference, but it's. Yes. I think Buckner gets humiliated at Shea. Is that right? What happens is game six in the World Series, the Red Sox versus the Mets, 1986. Now, the Red Sox had finally gotten the World Series with a team that could legitimately win the series. They had great play. Roger Clemens was the pitcher on the I mean, like, they had great players on the team. But the Mets were this like plucky, um, talented, but totally irreverent group of guys that were brought together. And somehow they got themselves into the World Series for the National League. And uh, right as they the Red Sox were ahead and uh, in game six, and it looked like they were going to win that series, the World Series. Um, and I can't remember who hit the ball. I think it was Ray Knight hits the ball. And Buckner, it looks like a routine. He's the first baseman. Uh, the ball is literally just rolling right to Buckner. It's, it's going fast, but it's not going too fast. And Buckner puts his glove in between his legs and puts it down on the ground. But unfortunately, he doesn't go all the way down to the ground. And so the ball slips underneath oh. his glove, 
just barely slips underneath his glove and goes careening into the right field. And um, two runs come around to score, and the Mets end up winning that game. And then they win game seven, even after the Red Sox had a lead in that game as well and win the World Series. So that Buckner moment lived forever in people's moments, uh, people's lives. And Red Sox fans saw that as, yep, we're always going to be the unlucky losers. We're never going to win the World Series. Um, and of course, that changed in 2004. But that for 18 years, that moment was a reference point for lovable losers, you know. So, my I assumed that it was that kind of story just based on the context. Yeah, I'm so glad that I have you on the show to actually explain what the moment is. <laughs> yeah, and what I could tell you is from the commentary track, Matt Damon refused to say this line, and he said that, and according to the director, he's like, I'm a Boston guy, you can't make me say this, <laughs> and they made him say it. So it's from a difference, in, yeah, because he doesn't want to pile on Buckner, and yeah, he doesn't yeah. want to bring up something where the Sox got <laughs> killed. That's like the worst thing for him to bring up. Um, it's a, but it's a great line but it's, it's a great you line. understand the reference if you're a sports guy buckner walking back into shea that's shea stadium the new york mets uh stadium yeah i got ten thousand dollars i'm looking for a game yeah this has similarities to eight mile doesn't it and i wonder if curtis hansen kind of used this film as a little bit of a blueprint because right at the beginning uh eminem chokes vomits on himself and then at the end he shows back up in the same place to destroy Papa Doc and kind of change his life and leave all his homies behind to go live a different life. And so I wonder if there's, if Curtis Hansen saw a little bit of that in round or used a little bit of that from rounders. It's very possible, but I never thought about it until I heard it mentioned about this is the references to the hustler, because that is the hustler. You know, we can go way back. Right. Right. Cause Good he point. loses to uh, Minnesota fats. Yes. And then, has to go away and go through all this stuff and get beat up and get his fingers broken. And then he has to come back strong and win the game that he had lost at the beginning. We should definitely do that film down the road. I haven't seen it in a long time. It's such a good movie. It is. It is surprising. I'm Oh, every time I've watched it, I'm surprised at just how dark that movie yeah. is. Yeah. It is upsetting. I love how people think, you know, color films discover darkness. Like get the flow, no. go back and go back and reach. Like someone was trying to tell me on, on YouTube recently, they were like, commenting how um the godfather turned around people's pers- is the first time you saw positive italian role models as act as, as characters in the film. I don't get, what the fuck are you talking about there have been positive italian uh characters in films from the 30s on there have been positive italian uh, characters there and so he's like no this is the first time they showed everybody else no you're saying gangsters say gang it's the first time you saw possibly italian positive portrayals of Italian gangsters. It's not the first time you saw a positive portrayal of Italians. That's ridiculous. Marty, he's fucking Italian and Marty. So there's, there's a bunch of things. So you just see people who just don't understand black and white movies. Don't go back and see the classics and really think it all started when color happened in movies, which is so stupid, just so fucking stupid. So the idea that, that like the, this movie about a bunch of gangsters and killers is the first time we saw positive portrayals of Italians. <laughs> it's a pretty weird statement. Right. It's cool. um, and the second thing is, is classically the serious movies were black and white and the comedies and musicals were color. Yeah, you're right. That's a good point. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Well, and just, you know, pe- people, anytime someone says this is the worst thing that's ever happened in history or never before has anyone done this who has not looked at history at all. Yeah. Always bugs me. Yeah. It's like, it's the first one you know about. Yeah, exactly. They say that that's a yeah. better thing for you to say, you know, okay. We've discussed Malkovich's accent. We <laughs> know that it's problematic. 
I love every fucking thing he does in this scene. In spite of the accent, he delivers a chilling, chilling portrayal here at the end of the movie with this. It is. Back. It managed to be chilling and fun. Oh, sure. And funny in its bizarre sort of way. Yeah. And it, as funny as it is, though, you feel the impending doom that will happen to Mike if he does not win. Like, oh, yeah. Sense it. It's in the walls. Deal play. Hits up. We both start with a couple of wrecks. Blinds uh, 25 and 50. And we don't stop till one of us has it all. Let's do it. And, and Mike makes a big bet. And, and, and this is the very first hand, I think. And KGB goes, Very aggressive. A new day. And you won't be pushed around. <laughs> <laughs> and again, we, you know, we're continuing to hear this uh, voiceover. And yeah. we're hearing these names, which... I'm just going to assume are actual people. Yeah. Doyle Brunson says the key to no limit is to put a man to a decision for all his chips. Teddy's just done it. He's representing aces. The only hand better than my Cowboys. I can't call and give him a chance to catch. I can only fold if I believe him or I re-raise. I'm all in. And KGB grabs an Oreo. He rotates the Oreo, pulls it apart, looks at it, and then doesn't eat it take it down and it's and he talks about how he took out teddy kgb's legs right off the bat and that he just has to lean on him to push him over so he's in full confidence mode right now well which makes sense because the size of your stack is how mm -hmm. it is a weapon you know if you have very little you have very little choice if you have a lot of chips then you get to you can push people around yeah jack's up they're good good hand Catching that jack on the turn. You got lucky there. Yep, it was luck. And that is it. Mike has won. Just like a young man coming in for a quickie. I feel so unsatisfied. You must feel proud and good. Strong enough to beat the world. You feel fine. And then Teddy just starts to go through it. Boris, you could let it drive, Mike. Take your chances. You could let this happen, Grandma. Sure, partner. And Mike is like, look, I've paid off Grandma, and I've got five grand left to, you know, pay, get halfway to paying back the professor, and it's time to leave. It's a fucking joke anyway. After all, I am paying you with your money. And Mike stops. So I'm just going to say <laughs> yes. that this is the wrong move and he should have walked out the door. Right. But this is, and this also tells you why he's friends with Worm. Yep. Because he does have an instinct to sometimes go for broke and that's what has led him into situations. And certainly the three stacks of high society at the beginning of the movie was him going for broke. And in this moment when he could play it safe and it's something he talks about throughout the whole movie the idea of playing it safe, grinding it out versus taking the chances. You got to figure out where those moments are in life. And this was the moment for him to walk away with the money set. He's good to go. He'll just keep living that life of his. But there's this one chance to either to make it to the World Series of Poker or get killed. It's either one. I think the way they frame things, the way people tend to think about things is things are either luck or their skill. You know, like if you and I decide to bet money on heads and tails of a coin, that's pure luck. There's zero skill. But 
when you're playing cards, there's a ratio between luck and skill. Some of it is luck because you can't control what cards you get. But then how you play the cards is skill and the level of skill in, in Texas Hold'em is very, very high. Yeah. But the fact that Mike caught that jack on the turn that allowed him to beat Teddy KGB, KGB says you got lucky on that one. Yeah. yeah. Because the odds are he wouldn't have caught that jack. Right. And so this is the thing is that sitting down again at this moment with Teddy KGB, he might go like, hey, I've got the eye of the tiger. I can take him down. I'm feeling good. <laughs> yeah. You could still fucking lose. Yes, of course. And losing in this case means that theoretically you're going to die. Oh, you're going you're gonna to be murdered. Yeah, yeah. No questions asked. I told Worm, you can't lose what you don't put in the middle. Deal. But you can't win much either. And he comes back aggressive. And Double says, the blinds. Table stakes. Feel free to reload at any time. Which means the KGB can bring in more money. Yeah. And we see them playing. And now the big stack is in front of KGB. You must be kicking yourself for not walking out than you could. Here's the thing that John Dahl said about Malkovich. Okay. He said that one of the things that's great about him is that he really understands the camera. And so he'll ask, what is the shot? What is the lens? And then figures out ways to do more. So John Dahl says, look, I, I want to get an insert of, of you looking at the cards. And Malkovich goes, well, what's the camera? What's the shot? What's the lens? He's like, I got something for you. And so instead of bringing the cards up a little, he brings himself down into the frame to yeah. look at the cards. That's and it's a really cool character shot. And that's because Malkovich understands what he's doing. Yeah. And it almost makes him snake-like. Yep. You know, which is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, by the way, <laughs> as much as they did make jokes about the accent, all the actors admired Malkovich. Of course. It's Malkovich. For and they loved, you know, the fact that they could go have stories with Malkovich about all of his acting stories. Mm -hmm. And then they got to go hang out with Martin Landau and hear about, you know, James Dean and all of those stories. This for two young up-and-coming actors, Ed and Matt, this was a real treat. Oh, I'm sure. Um, so we got a hand. We got a five, three, and an ace not suited. Malkovich picks up a cookie, looks at the cookie, eats the cookie. Yeah. So first of all, by the way, I love that, you know, it's very funny and cool that his cookies are on a chip stack. Second thing is, if you leave Oreos out like that, they will go stale pretty quickly. So I don't think this is a good way to keep your Oreos. <laughs> True. And the third thing is, is that you can see through Matt Damon's performance that he saw something Yep. that he saw Teddy KGB's tell two things. One is I think this totally works in the movie. And the other is I hate that he has such an obvious tell. I think KGB, he would never have this guy has been playing a lot of poker. He always has those cookies. They are obvious enough that every audience member is going to notice them, mm -hmm. which means they are a thing that a great poker player like KGB would never do. Okay. Fair enough. But you can see that Matt has caught it. And he thinks about it, and then he says... I'm laying this down, Teddy. It's a monster hand. I'm going to lay that down. Because you got 2-4, and I'm not going to draw against a made hand. So what did, what, did, what did Mike do in this moment? He essentially gave up the ability to win a lot of money off Teddy because he thought it'd be disingenuous to beat Teddy in this way. He oh, you think this is an honor thing? Oh, yeah, totally. I think oh, he, I don't think that at all. That's interesting. It's insulting. It's it, he's in his. He's not doing it to make Teddy feel good about him. He's doing it to show him, "Yo, man, I have figured you out. 
And I am surrendering a massive hand here because I got you now, bitch. And he's basically saying, I respect you enough as a player that I don't want to just keep, like he says in the thing, I, busting you up all night and because I, I only have a little amount of time. So by doing it this way, he is in essence goading Teddy to play for higher stakes. Uh, and so by telling him, I figured out your tell, he is unsettling him. Remember he said earlier, all I had to do was lean on him to make him fall over. And to me, him putting this, this hand down, telling Teddy that he, he doesn't even tell Teddy that he knows his tell. Teddy goes, the fuck you put that down for? And so he is analyzing it, Teddy is, and then he realizes it's the Oreos. He realizes his tell has been found out by uh, Mike in that moment. And so it's, it's a personal affront to him. And he throws the Oreos against the wall in utter frustration and anger. And says, let's play cards, Mr. Son of a Beach. So it, it's more, it's, it's a challenge. You know what I'm saying? And so it's great. And, and my, what Mike has done is mentally get the edge here by willingly giving up um, the chance to win more money off of Teddy uh, and using his tell. So he's basically saying, let's do this man to man. No bullshit. I love it. So I strongly disagree with the very first thing you said, and I agree with everything else you said, <laughs> which is that I think this is not, a, I don't think this is about honor. Yeah. I think this is entirely about gaining an advantage over Teddy KGB. I think this is an extremely disrespectful thing to do yeah. to take, I see an advantage over you and I'm so much better than you and so confident. I'm going to throw my advantage away. Yeah. And, and that's how I'm going to, and, and it's very obvious Teddy KGB, who has been super cool throughout, yeah. is no longer super cool. And he tosses those, you know, Oreos against the wall. Mr. Son of a Beach, let's play some cards. And now a big crowd is watching. And Mike is way ahead on chips. Kids got alligator blood. Can't get rid of him. And what happens is, is it's exactly what happens in that Johnny Chan video we saw before, which is he flops a nut straight. And what a nut straight is means that's the best hand possible with this layout of cards. Yeah. So Mike knows he's won. He's not beatable already. Right. Right. And the question is, how does he get KGB to beat to bet into it? And he shows a lot of weakness. He shows a lot of indecision. And Teddy splashes the pot which means to drop your chips into the pot all right i'll call the two grand i'll gamble don't splash the pot you're on a draw mike go away this one is not good for you and in my club i will splash the pot whenever the fuck i please you know mike again is representing that his cards aren't that strong and teddy betts splashes the pot again it's 4400 all right i'm gonna call you or else I won't respect myself tomorrow morning. Respect is all you have left in the morning. And the last card comes out, and it's an ace of spades. So one of the decisions that you had to make, or they had to make directing, was do we, the audience, know what's in Mike's hand? Right. And John Dahl decided, because it would be very dramatic to not know until the end, and John Dahl decided, no, because we want you with Mike. So you have to know the tension is not about whether or not he can win the hand. The tension is whether or not you can get KGB to go all in. Right. And KGB, when that ace falls, thinks that he's won. It hurts, doesn't it? You can't believe what fell. 
which is of course exactly how Mike felt at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. You know, he thought like KGB that he totally had it, but he was wrong about what his opponent had. And he says that ace could not have helped you. And he bets it all splashing it. You're right. Teddy. The ace didn't help me. I flopped the nut straight. And Teddy KGB is not happy. Motherfucker! You fool your nut! Motherfucker! Absolutely loses it. Yeah. Chick, chick, chick all night. He trapped me. Oh, so great. What a great reaction from Malkovich. It's so believable. It stays within the character. He doesn't lose status. Nope. Even though he's been beat. Uh, even though he's, you know, whining in essence, you know, uh, he maintains his status. Uh dealing with the loss. Well, you feeling satisfied now, Teddy? Because I can go on busting you up all night. And what I think is, it's like, this is worm. You know what I mean? Mm. Like this kind of pushing back after the win is taking a little bit of worm, but not in the way that's self-destructive like worm does it. Maybe. Because remember, he talks shit to those cigar people. So he's got it in him. And and you may have been worm that rubbed off on him from like being a kid, like when they were growing up as kids. Worm kind of gave him a little bit of swagger. So you might be right, Steve, in that way. So well, yeah. whether or not whether or not he got it from Worm or he just because he has some knish and some worm in him, and it's yep. going to be the combo of those two things that is going to make him the great poker player. Right. And I love that KGB admits it. You know, he he doesn't, you know, try to deny it or anything. He says, Yet, yet, he beats me straight up. Pay him. Pay that man his money. That's great. Yep. And what, what's funny, by the way, is Grandma's angry and tosses a chair. And I'm like, Grandma, why are you angry? You just got $25,000 that you paid 30 cents on the dollar for. This is better. If Mike had lost, you would have had nothing and you would have had to kill him. I think he wanted to kill him. Oh, maybe. There's a hidden thing here that I don't know that the film addresses, but Teddy KGB has a certain kind of hatred for michael and maybe even for mike rather and maybe even grandma because he represents what they're not Mm. young good looking upwardly mobile sure beautiful girlfriend and the possibility to be a lawyer and working in the halls of power in new york they're fucking grinders working a a circuit on playing poker you know dealing with uh, right. grandma has a you know he runs women he's a prostitute he's a pimp rather right as well as all these other nefarious shit he does. So Mike is representative a bit of the rich boy coming down to hang with him, even though he's not a rich boy. Right. So it's just like, it's, it's, I think there's an undue hatred towards Mike because of what he represents. So in essence, grandma killing him, he doesn't have to see Mike around him and to remind him of the loser he actually is. Some people are like that. I think it's a good point. And I think what's really interesting, and again, it goes to the difference between Matt Damon and Ed Norton and their performances and the way they act and their appearance is that Worm and Mike come from the same place. Yes. Basically. Yes. And Mike can present himself in high society with the lawyers, with the power elite and totally fit in. Yeah. Worm could never do that. And neither could Teddy KGB and neither can grandma. Turn my 10 grand into just over 60. Paid 15 to Grandma, 6 went back to the Chesterfield. As for Worm, well, I figure we're even. And after the 10 going back to the Professor, I'm back where I started, with three stacks of high society. (laughs) And there's Joe, who says he looks like hell. So you're out of here, huh? 
Yeah, I'm, I figure there's nothing, nothing left for me here. And he has her give the money back to the professor. And can I count on you to do that? You can always count on me, Mike. Which is nice. Yeah. I think this ending, this was a relationship that should have ended. Yeah. And actually has ended in a pretty good way. Yeah. Take care, Joe. Hey. Call me. And there's the look, and she says, If you need a lawyer. And I love the way Damon plays this. I will. Meaning, I'll call you. And then says, And I will. Meaning, I'll need a lawyer at some point. Gets in a cab. So where are you headed? I'm going to Vegas. Good luck, man. People insist on calling it luck. Thanks. First prize at the World Series of Poker is a million bucks. Does it have my name on it? I don't know. But I'm going to find out. Cab drives away, fade to black, and that is the end of Rounders. He does thank the cab driver. He which does. Is different from how he talked about it before. So I think oh, there's, good point. there's a change here in Mike. Yeah. He's now a, little, a bit less defensive about people calling it luck like Joe and a little more understanding. Why? Because he beat Teddy KGB. He's, in, he's finally proved it to himself. And so he's a little more magnanimous. So yeah, so it's a change. And, and I like that this is a movie where we can totally imagine that he does win the series of poker, you know? Yeah, people have been asking for a sequel to this film for quite some time. That he is a champion, oh. and something else happens, and and Worm uh, comes back somehow. Yeah, there was a there was a sequel to Color to the, uh, the Hustler called Color of Money. So it's possible that he's Kanish now, and guiding a new young kid through the through the halls of of card playing. I don't know. Which, by the way, my memory is that you don't like Color of Money. It's not. It's not my favorite film. No, Scorsese. It's a little too weird out there. It's a little too out there for me. Scorsese is too in love in that film with sweeping overhead shots. Right. And I'm like, it's a fucking car, a pool playing movie, man. Cut it out. Cut it out. You know, just in my mind. And not to tell the group, the master what to do, but it just felt like it's a little too much. It's one that I uh, totally enjoy for what it is. It's like so different from The Hustler. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like The Hustler is a great film. And The Color of Money is, it's almost like a guilty pleasure for me. But. That is the end of the film. I don't have very anything about post. I know that it opened, you know, in 1998 in the winter. It made $8.5 million on its opening weekend, 22.9 total domestic box office. And it's a cult hit. You know, it's slowly built up over time. And it's interesting. This is a number that I think is very telling, which is on Rotten Tomatoes. It gets a 65%. Ridiculous. But an 87% from the audience. Yeah, no and this is the different. This is that kind of a movie where, yeah, some critics might not like it, but I like it, and you like it, you know, and people like it, and that is everything I have on Rounders. I mean, I like me. My wife likes me. <laughs> My customers like me. <laughs> no, uh, John Kennedy. Yeah, yeah. Go. I mean. Um, let me go with my final thoughts. My final thoughts are that this film still holds up. It's still so imminently watchable. It's one of those films you can, it's like Major League or Star Trek Wrath of Khan for me. It's like, if it's on, I'm going to watch this film. The performances here are absolutely excellent. You're catching all of these actors in their prime or about to approach their prime, and they deliver fantastic performances. John Dahl directs the hell out of this small little story and makes you care about these characters. And that score is so good into building the moments, building the tension that's coming. 
And then you get someone like John Malkovich bringing in one hell of a performance as Teddy KGB. That is, that is, makes you not forget the accent, but certainly look past the accent because of the reality and the realness that he's bringing to this character. And you care about Mike. You care. We've all been in that situation with somebody who we shouldn't be friends with. And we just can't see all our friends and our parents and our family telling us, get away from that person. That person's not good for you. And you're just like, you're stubbornly by this person because you think you see something better in that person. And sometimes you're right, but most of the time you're not. And that person eventually bites you like a scorpion bites that frog. And I think this film tells a great story. Plus, if you look at it as a sports film, this is a rousing ending. He gets the best of Teddy KGB. And I would argue um, these stakes here are much higher than any rap battle any football game, any baseball game, any soccer game, any whatever game, the sports ending here is I get to keep my life. Yeah. So the stakes are higher than any other sports film that you could possibly watch. And I think that adds a kind of nice element to this movie and makes it even more grounded and have more weight to it than you would think it might have on the surface. So I don't have much to add, and I'll I'll reiterate a couple of your points maybe, but here's what I'll say is that Many times on The Cinephiles, or a few times, we've talked about what I would call a perfect film. Yeah. This is not a perfect film. No. I think it, it, this is a great example of a movie that I love. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's perfect, and it so brings together all these different things. The most important one for me is it brings you to a world that I knew nothing about. Yeah. And it's so exciting, to, and the world feels totally realized and totally real. And whether or not it's really like this, I don't know. But, like, it felt real. And then you have... Two up-and-coming stars right at the beginning. Yes. And you have three phenomenal supporting actors with Martin Landau, John Turturro, and John Malkovich all delivering these great performances. And the movie, it's beautifully directed by John Dahl. I just, I'm the same thing. I will I will put this on and watch this again and again and again. Yeah. So that's what we think of Rounders. Of course, we'd love to hear what you think. You can visit us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love to get your reviews. But maybe you want to subscribe on Stitcher or Overcast or YouTube and any of those other places. Subscribe at all of them. Why not? And um, (laughs) you can also support the show by going to patreon.com slash the cinephiles, where John and I just recorded a great conversation about Shark Week. So that's something you can hear right now. And you can buy Rounders along with every other film we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net. And you can reach me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram, and of course, Enterprise Incidents. We are getting, we're halfway through season three of the original series of Star Trek. John, how would people find you? You can always find me at The Roca Says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, The Outlaw Nation on Twitch, and my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca Says. Uh, and also head on over to listen to my other podcasts, The Top 10. And the Geek Buddies, they're out there for you all to enjoy now officially on iHeart. So go and uh, subscribe to them there if you can. And I think that's it for this week. We will be back next week for another great film on the Cinephiles. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.